I'm Jerry Ratcliffe with ReducingCrime.com, a podcast featuring interviews with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers working to advance public safety. Australia's Queensland Police Service have embraced evidence-based policing and in this, the second episode of Reducing Crime, I talk with Inspector Mike Newman about evidence-based policing and his work as the liaison between QPS and the local academic community. Find out more at ReducingCrime.com and on Twitter at underscore ReducingCrime. Mike Newman has over 26 years police service, has worked general duties, crime units, criminal investigation and tactical units. He's also been seconded to the Australian Crime Commission. In 2013, he managed his first evidence-based policing project and was subsequently promoted to inspector in 2015. He has been recently appointed to uh, the position of detective inspector over the investigations and intelligence training unit. In 2016, Mike undertook a 15-month secondment as the Evidence-Based Policing Visiting Fellow at the University of Queensland, where he worked with the renowned Professor Lorraine Maserol. He is the Secretariat of the Australian and New Zealand Society for Evidence-Based Policing and a well-known advocate for evidence-based policing. I caught up with Mike after the Society of Evidence-Based Policing's conference in Milton Keynes in the UK in March of 2018, stuck in a bar in a snowed-in hotel. There are worse places to meet. Well, Mike, it's nice to see you. Here we are in the reception of the delightful Milton Keynes Hilton, snowed in as we are, as the second day of the Society of Evidence-Based Policing Conference has been cancelled. How exciting is it to be here in a snowed-in Milton Keynes? Uh, Considering where I come from in Queensland, this is awesome. It's uh, (laughs) something completely different to what I see at home. Yeah, have actually gone out to walk through the snow to experience that. And you're the only person in this whole country who's voluntarily done that. (laughs) It was great that you came all the way over, to some degree at your own expense, to the Society of Evidence-Based Policing Conference here in in the UK. Uh, What drove you to do that? Uh, I got an invite from Alex Murray. He's asked if I'd come over and present on the Queensland projects, and yeah, more than happy to help out, because Alex actually has been a big supporter of the Australian New Zealand Society of Evidence-Based Policing. Done exactly the same thing himself a number of times. He's actually come out three times for our conferences, again on his own leave and at expense to himself as well. Well, good for both of you. It's actually hard to say no to someone like that. Yeah, he's a solid bloke. You came over, you did a great presentation for everybody who didn't get a chance to see it. Kind of briefly, what would you say that were the kind of key things that you wanted to convey? Some of the key things I was trying to convey is around the evidence-based projects. We obviously do a number of randomised control trials. You can't do a randomised control trial for everything, but where you can, where you get the opportunity, we should be. We, we need to take that opportunity. They're not great for parachutes? They're not great for parachutes? No. No, I wouldn't want to be the control subject. There you go. But again, where, where we don't do harm, where, where we've got the operational ability to do it, let's get in and try it. A number of the projects I presented on were around training. We can do that any day of the week. Any change we make, big or small, we can actually test to make sure it actually is effective. In Australia, certainly, and I would say across the world, you're one of the now leading police services in terms of thinking about developing evidence and just trying different things. How did 
Queensland Police Service get there? We got there, and a lot of that was through uh, through an assistant commissioner we had, sorry, dep- and then deputy commissioner we had at the time, Peter Martin, and the relationship he had with Lorraine Mazarol. With those two at the helm, in about 2013... Well, we should say at this point that Lorraine Mazarol is a professor at the University of Queensland. Exactly, and uh, she and uh, Peter have had a uh, long-standing relationship and obviously developed a uh, significant amount of trust between each other over the years. Uh, and in 2009, we ran our first randomised control trial, which... Uh, Lorraine and Peter have both published widely. And that's where really the germ of the thought around using evidence-based policing started. Now, that was the work on traffic stops, wasn't it? That's right, yeah, Queensland Community Engagement Trial, so QSET. And that was the work they did on that and essentially showed procedural justice. Um, You can actually spend longer with a driver than you otherwise ordinarily would, two to three times longer, and leave them with a better impression of not just that police officer, but the organisation as a whole. So if your aim is just to churn through traffic stops, then that's the end of the matter. But if you actually want to use tra- do traffic stops and improve public perception of the police, there is now research evidence from Queensland that demonstrates that that's worth doing. Exactly, yes. And that kind of thing's great. But that was one example. We've got no shortage of police services in Australia and other countries that have done one thing. But they haven't developed this culture that Queensland Police seem to have developed and moved to where you're getting into this drive for evidence-based policing across the whole organisation. Yeah, look, again, Peter Martin's been a driving force behind that. 2013, um, again with Lorraine Maserol, they actually held the first evidence-based policing masterclass workshops where they invited senior police from around Australia to actually come together and do this masterclass and learn what it is to actually undertake a randomised control trial, learn what evidence-based policing is all about. And from that was born the Australian New Zealand Society of Evidence-Based Policing. A representative from each jurisdiction actually put their hands up and said, yeah, I want to be part of this. I want to do that. That's great. And that's where that's where we originally started. Um, and through Peter Martin's obvious linkage into the into our commissioner, he's been able to uh, influence our commissioner to the extent that our commissioner is very much on board and very, very supportive of what we do. So that sounds to me like that's really been key to making things happen because I think in many police services, the idea that you might test and evaluate and try new things is seen as risky. You know, there's there's an old old saying, I'm not sure how old it is. You know, I saw a police officer at a conference a couple of years ago saying that you can fail in policing as long as you fail conventionally. And what this is really about is pushing a different approach and trying new things. And that always carries risk with it. So how did you, as an organisation, overcome that sense of risk to get to this kind of culture of curiosity? Yeah, look, again, around 2013, we had a uh, significant restructure where a lot of the um, decision-making and responsibility was have actually been devolved down to lower levels, essentially where the decisions should be being made. As a result of that, what the Commissioner's edict was at that time was we actually need to give people the room to fail. We actually need to be able to let people have an idea let people try an idea and give them the room to fail. In many places, that would be career limiting. In many places, it might be. But with us, we need to look at the lessons learned from that. Yes, again, it can. The failure comes with its own context. It depends on the on the type of failure. Um, we've run projects now which haven't worked or haven't worked the way we intended. And whilst most people will actually see that as a failure, we can actually look at the lessons learned from that and not a, and apply those to future projects. So in some regards, being out there trying different things is actually career enhancing. Yes, very much so. Okay, so better to be doing new things and trying new things than to be just doing same old, same old. Yeah, very much so. And look, our senior leaders actually want to see people having an idea. They actually want to see them um, trying something different, implementing something different, and showing showing the evidence of the of the benefits that came from it. I saw your presentation, and you were really arguing that that's what changes us and makes us a profession. Yeah, uh, look, very much so. If we don't if we don't have the evidence to show what we do is effective and efficient, we're at the mercy of governments. We're at the mercy of others to tell us what we should be doing.
And if we don't actually lead that research, if we don't actually take part in that, then all, we, all we're ever going to be is being told by somebody else how to do it and what we should do. Personally, I think gone are the days where we can actually just rely on a cop's gut instinct. Yes, our experience and our knowledge is very important and we do need to rely on that, but we need to actually mix that with the science, with the evidence, with, with the research methodology to be able to actually test and make sure what we do, what we think we know, we actually do know. Because sometimes we don't get it right. And that experience is useful, but it provides the starting point for things that we should then think about testing and examining. Very much so, yes. Yeah, it's not just one person. Because nobody in policing can have all the experience necessary to deal with every different type of incident or problem or organisational issue. You just can't have that level of experience. No, not one person is going to have all the answers. And that's where in Queensland, what we're trying to do is actually get the uh, the troops on the ground, the, uh, the guys and girls who are actually out there in the operational field settings who are actually experiencing the issues to come up with the ideas and solutions that we can test and trial that might actually improve the way they go about uh, doing business. Okay, so that's very different to be reaching down to the front line because I think a lot of junior officers are reticent about coming to a senior officer and saying, hey, I've got an idea. How do you overcome that rank structure that inhibits a lot of vertical discussion? A lot of that, again, is through different mechanisms. Uh, Lorraine Maserol actually goes out and gives a um, recruit lecture, about an hour of recruit lecture on evidence-based policing to every recruiter group that goes through now. On top of that, we run evidence-based policing workshops for uh, senior constables, sergeants, uh, and the like. We're actually running about 18 of those. We get through about 40 people each time. We're actually delivering that to our essentially our non-commissioned officer ranks to, to give them an idea about evidence-based policing. But the, the second half of those workshops is actually going through and developing as a table group, so a table group of about 10, developing a, an idea, developing a project that they can actually go away and try or that they can approach university and academic support to try. How's that being received? Because senior constables, people with double digit years in the job have a tendency to think that, you know, as we all do, you know, when I had 10 years in the job, I kind of thought that I knew it all. Look, I can, yeah, I can certainly guarantee you there's a healthy amount of scepticism in the room to begin with. One of the leading things with that is whilst those workshops are generally run with the academic support and led by the academics, it's the police officers in the room, like myself, like Scott McLaren, who's the evidence-based policing visiting fellow at University of Queensland now, give the team legitimacy in the room. We, we are there and telling these, these people ex exactly how good the uh, research and academic support is for policing and what we can actually do with, the, with them because they actually want to work with us, not against us. Uh, and so look, by the, by the end of the day... Yeah, this is one of the troubles of trying to do this in the reception of a hotel because for anybody listening in, we are snowed in in Milton Keynes. And even though this podcast will probably come out in the summer, you can understand that the hotel is full of people who have had nowhere else to go and the bar is open. <laughs> so, yeah, so by the end of the day, we actually end up with four different ideas that have come out that are, that are actually going to be quality ideas because each of the tables is facilitated either by myself uh, as the as a um, experienced police officer now after being embedded with Lorraine and the team or someone with a PhD qualification or a professor actually at the tables helping guide the discussions. You've worked with academics for some years now. I think you started in 2013. You were a senior sergeant in Brisbane when you started an evidence-based policing project with the Mobile Police Community Officers Office. Was that with academic support and help? Yeah, it was. That was with um, Dr. Sarah Benner from the University of Queensland. And was that your first interaction with a sort of academics in that professional capacity? Very much so. So has working with academics changed your view of academia? Uh, very much so. The um, yeah, it it actually has. I've got a lot more respect for academia now than than I had previously. We have had 
a number of uh, academics previously, as I said, tell us what we should be doing uh, without actually having done the research with police. They do it on police. And I find that very difficult to actually accept as an operational police officer. I'm happy to, and as I said, having had the exposure now, I'm more than happy to work with academics, but I want to work with them. That first group are very prevalent. It's how a lot of academics make their living is they stand off from a distance outside and they criticise police. But I've never seen it being really successful in driving change. It drives their career, but it doesn't drive change. The change comes when academics seem to make the effort to work with police and collaborate with police. But it also needs guys like yourself to work with the academics. And, and look, that's where I think we're actually um, very fortunate in Queensland because we actually have uh, three inspectors who are actually embedded with different universities in Queensland. So the Queensland Police Service have actually invested heavily in this idea and in uh, working with academics to actually achieve their goals and, and research aims. It helps us as the uh, liaison and broker because to actually help the universities achieve their aims and goals as well. Is there a general sense within the management of Queensland Police Service that the amount of investment that you've made working with fellows and investing in academia has been returned to the organisation? Yeah, I, I do. I certainly do. And that's, as I said, that's starting to be evidenced by the number of projects we're actually starting to run. The research within Queensland Police Service has really started to skyrocket over the last couple of years. And a lot of that has been driven by the, uh, the visiting fellows at uh, the universities. Uh, and a, uh, a growing appetite for research within policing. Is that also driving the ability of Queensland Police to generate their own evidence? Because you can't be relying on academics and shouldn't be relying on academics if this is going to become business as usual. And that's one of the beauties I've found with having been embedded with um, uh, the university for about 15 months is that I don't actually have a background in criminology. My background in criminology is an Normally, operational police officer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, my qualifications are in an IT, but Having been embedded with uh, with Lorraine and the team, as I said, for 15 months, that has really given me a skill set that I didn't have before. And it's given me the experience and the ability to actually assist other officers with projects. Again, probably lower level projects, simpler projects. But again, it's increased the capability that the Queensland Police Service has. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with simple. There are so many areas of policing where we just do it because that's how we've always done it. And yeah. everything should be open to be enhanced and tested to see if we can do it better. When you say embedded, what does that actually mean? That meant I was still actually paid by the Queensland Police Service, but I worked on a day-to-day -day basis at the University of Queensland with the uh, criminology team. Did that give you opportunities to go to lectures, to work on... Uh, what, does that, what does that actually... What does the day-to-day -day job actually look like? Day-to-day -day job, I, uh, I went and uh, did some presentations. I, w I wasn't actually going to lectures. Uh, I, I was uh, there as a presenter. It was also as a facilitator for these evidence-based policing workshops, so working with the team to actually... Uh, develop and en enhance their product that they can deliver to the Queensland Police Service as facilitating the products. It was actually uh, acting as a uh, as a broker for different projects. So the ideas that we were getting from the Queensland Police Service, from these people, from these workshops, they would then come to me uh, and I would actually sit down with them and try and flesh the idea out a, a bit more, try and make it a bit more coherent. But I would also then, with the networks that I have, go and speak to the different assistant commissioners or different areas to try and uh, facilitate these projects moving forward, whether we needed to find a funding stream, whether we needed to uh, be able to talk to different assistant commissioners, as I said, essentially try and, well, not grease the wheels, but try and make it, remove the roadblocks for them to actually get these projects running. 
So it sounds like that you're taking the researcher perspective and making it a bit more practical, but taking the policing perspective and making it more amenable to being researched. Very much so. Look, and I would coordinate meetings with the um, with the police and with the researchers because I'd obviously try and uh, identify appropriate researchers. How did that go? Really well, but I actually did think I described myself as a bit of a translator because I got to the stage where I would translate the operational necessities to the researchers, and then I would translate the research necessities to the police. And whilst we're both we we're all speaking the same language, they weren't in those rooms. Right. Uh, and that's where I was actually able to help and turn around and go to the police, okay, well, this is what the researcher means from your perspective. And you could see the light bulb moments. And that's and I do the same with the um, researchers from the police perspective. No, this is an operational necessity. This can't bend. We need to actually do this. We can't actually do it that way because it's a, an operational necessity. And again, you see the light bulb come on and go, okay, well, let's do this. So it was a bit of a translation and a bit of trying to get both the operational and the research worlds to meet to actually form an effective project. What were some of the successes? Yeah, there's been a lot of successes, actually. I've, um, over the 15 months, there's probably a good dozen trials that we ran. But not all of these were RCTs. Yeah, no, they were all RCTs. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, we've pretty much focused uh, significantly on RCTs. Whilst I said there's about a dozen from um, from University of Queensland where I was at, there was just as many, if not more, from Griffith University, uh, which weren't all RCTs. Some were, but not all RCTs, but there's significant other amounts of research going on. But you've been able to identify opportunities to do true experiments in situations where um, where there, there isn't that level of operational risk. It's just opportunities where you can try different ways, even just down to thinking about paperwork and thinking about other opportunities. Small nudges, I think you talked about, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. There was a couple of small nudges that we did, and we've done a couple of really uh, full-on uh, experiments around uh, reducing drug supply and the like. So it's spanned the entire gamut of, uh, of different RCT-type projects. Can you give me an example of uh, one of the bigger things, an example of a smaller nudge project? Yeah, look, one of the bigger ones we did is uh, Operation Galley. It's, uh, we're looking to reduce um, drug supply in and, in and around inner-city hotel accommodation providers. Detective Sergeant Paul Morton from Brisbane City CIB went to one of these workshops, came up to us with the idea. He'd actually been running a pilot project Sorry, he contacted six different hotels and told them what he was looking for to uh, assist with identification of uh, drug suppliers or drug manufacturers in their hotels. And he was getting some uh, he was getting some good reporting response rates out of that. He wanted to know how he could turn that into an RCT. So after some uh, discussions that he and I had, I'd organised a meeting with Lorraine and we went from there and we've developed and designed a, uh, a massive RCT which included 120 inner city hotels um, in three different cohorts of so business as usual. Second cohort got a procedurally just scripted letter, and the third one got the procedurally just scripted letter, information package, and a personal visit from police and Queensland Fire Emergency Services. And what we were looking to do was look at using third-party policing principles to actually uh, lever uh, the hotel managers to actually provide us with more information, and hopefully then we would actually look at making the marketplace their accommodations unsustainable to drug suppliers. What is a procedurally just letter? The procedurally just letter, we wanted to include the four key elements of procedural justice into the communication we were having with the hotel management. So we're looking at having neutrality in it. We wanted to show that we were being fair, that we weren't targeting these people. And we wanted to give them voice We wanted, and we wanted to treat them with dignity and respect. Have you got the results then? The personal group was by far and away an outstanding success. We were getting reporting rates six times to one compared to the letter and the business as usual rates. Okay, that was a, a big project, really successful. It's lovely to see detectives getting involved in that because they're often uh, focused on individual cases. 
So it was great that you managed to get a detective starting to think about different ways of, of using evidence-based policing. Yeah, and, and it is. And uh, a comment I've had said to me before is that detectives are never, sorry, never ever able to be uh, preventative because they're always reactive. They're always getting the case files uh, and reacting to those case files. Well, uh, Paul's proved that not only can they run, a, run an RCT, they can actually uh, pre- prevent crime. Now, we're still obviously uh, evaluating that and looking at the results, but... Uh, from a uh, reporting perspective, yeah, it's been a great success. That was an example of a big project. Tell me something about a smaller project, a nudge, because I think the whole gamut of policing is open to possibilities for smaller projects just to tweak and improve what we do. A smaller project or a nudge that we're doing is a replication from West Midlands Police where uh, we're looking at uh, targeting our speeding offenders. What we're trying to do is actually reduce uh, their level of uh, offending as well as um, increase the uh, amount uh, of fines being, being paid. What are the interventions and what are you trying to change? Interventions, uh, we're actually just sending out a procedural just letter with the normal fine that we send out. We're targeting 20,000 drivers. 10,000 will receive their normal fine. 10,000 will receive their fine plus this letter. Uh, and yeah, as I said, we're trying to actually reduce their offending into the future, but also looking at uh, increasing payment rates of fines. Okay, so by providing a procedurally just letter, you're hoping they'll read the letter and think differently about what they did and increase the rates at which people are actually paying their fine. Yeah, yeah, increase the rates of paying, as I said, and also reduce their uh, their recidivism into the future. What does the procedurally just letter for the speeders look like? Part of it's a photograph we've actually t- taken of a, of a real-life uh, roadside uh, memorial where somebody's died from speeding, from a speeding accident. The letters, the teddy bears and all that sort of thing that have actually been stuck on that, at, that memorial well, at that very, site. That's very powerful. Uh, and that's, that's what we're hoping. It will actually trigger people and to see exactly what the result of a traffic crash is without the guts and gore of some adverts you see where you see the mangled cars around the pole. So we're looking at them seeing the lasting effect of what the accident is. Plus, we're actually put, put some language in there around uh, encouraging them to, to pay their fine. But we're also highlighting why we're actually out there doing the, spe- doing the speed enforcement, that we're trying to actually drop the speeding rates and uh, reduce the, uh, the road toll, reduce the serious injury traffic crashes by highlighting to them with another graphic around what our actual road tolls are. And, uh, and what the effect of speeding enforcement actually has on those. What a great project because the potential for a small change like that to improve a range of outcomes is potentially huge given how many people speed and how often people get caught speeding. To highlight that is that uh, this project is underway at the moment and they managed to do the 20,000, capture the 20,000 people they needed within one week. <laughs> Across Queensland? Yeah. Okay, so there's some potential to, for improvement there. It only needed to be a very short trial. It's a very simple trial. It's adding an extra sheet of paper to a fine that's already going to be sent out anyway. And you mentioned earlier that you know there's this photograph of the memorial as an alternative to the more gory photographs. And I take it if you have some success with this, you could then compare that to a gory photograph and a whole range of different things just to find out what is the, the most... Uh, ideal nudge to get the results that you're looking for. Yeah, very much so. And and that's and that's the beauty of the nudges. You can just build on each one as you go and it's done pretty quickly. That's great. Where next for Queensland Police with this level of investment in evidence-based policing? Honestly, looking to continue doing these RCTs, looking to continue to developing the evidence, but not just that. Other things that we're actually looking to do is actually start to translate the evidence. Now that we're actually starting to develop it, we want to actually start to implement it and make change based on that evidence. The really transformative aspect of this is that once you've actually identified a strategy or a, or a policy that does work, run with it, implement it, make it uh, go across 
the uh, the organisation. Just as importantly is the ones that you identify that don't work or that aren't as successful have the courage to actually stop doing. You talked about changing the organisation. Are you noticing cultural changes as well taking place within the organisation? Because this is a big change. This is a big change. And as I said before, there there is still some resistance, but th- there are a lot of people that are actually very interested in this now and can understand the benefits of it and can see the uh, the advantage to, to actually looking at policing in this in this way and making sure that we do develop our own evidence. Other areas where, where we're doing it is we're actually delivering those evidence-based policing workshops to our senior sergeants be- as a part of their mandatory uh that they have to do a management development program before they can be promoted to inspector. So every senior sergeant wanting to become an inspector is doing an evidence-based policing workshop. Uh, And now Scott and myself actually run an evidence-based policing uh, session for all of our newly promoted inspectors to actually give them uh, another refresher on that at a senior leaders course just after they get promoted. When you're running into people who have got 15 years in the job and a lot of the time, there's a chunk of cynicism. It's policing, and that's, it know, is. that's, how, that's how we get by. It gets us up in the morning. How do you overcome that? How do you get people who've seen change that's come, and then it's gone again, and we've gone back to how we've done things? How do you overcome that level of resistance? Look, a lot of it is actually essentially using procedural justice with them as well. Sitting down and, and treating them with respect, treating with fairness, showing them we've got trustworthy motives, and giving them a voice, letting them have their say, but then explaining to them what we're trying to do, why we're trying to do it, and that what we're trying to do is actually improve their lot. And, and I can guarantee you, 99% of the time I've had those conversations, like it was with me when I first heard about evidence-based policing, it was a light bulb moment. Uh, and you see the light bulb go on and go, ah, okay. I only started in this in 2013, so I had 20 years service by then. And it took me that long for the light bulb to go off. But it's gone off and it's something that, as yeah, this is cultural change, this is organisational change. It's going to be slow. We first started with the first randomised control trial in 2009. But we are building up. We are gaining momentum and we are moving forward with this. And I, th- I think the future looks bright. I think it looks fantastic, actually. Great. And where's next for Mike Newman? Implementing some of these uh, successful trials, the uh, particularly the blended detective training program. Again, got to go out and consult with the stakeholders to, to explain to them why we're doing this. And that's, just, that's going to be about presenting the results to them and formulating a, a way to do this that uh, suits their needs and ours. And that's that's what I want to see is the change come about from a practice that's uh, gone on for 20 or 30 years to actually deliver better detectives at the end of the day. Well, Mike, thanks very much indeed for your time. Good luck with everything you guys are doing down in Queensland. Now let's see if we can uh, break out of Milton Keynes and get home. <laughs> no problems at all. Thanks very much for your time, Jerry. Cheers, mate. That was episode two of Reducing Crime, recorded in March 2018. You can find more podcasts like this at reducingcrime.com and wherever you found this. New podcasts are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime. Just don't forget the underscore. Be safe and best of luck. Music